Let me tell you about our people's survival. It is best captured by a story from nearly 2,000 years ago. And it involves the events surrounding the destruction of the temple in 70 CE, the most catastrophic event the Jewish people ever experienced until, of course, the 20th century's Holocaust. And it is the story about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, during the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans, Yochanan was secreted out of town by his students, and they carried him to the Roman general's camp in a coffin. And there he negotiated with Vespasian that Yavna be spared so that a rabbinic academy could be established there. Why did he need to sneak out of Jerusalem? because his Jewish compatriots might very well have killed him. So divided were the Jewish people during those years that he feared for his life. He was a known critic of the Sadducees who stubbornly held fast to the rituals surrounding animal sacrifices. Yochanan ben Zakkai also stood against the Zealots who took up arms against the mighty Roman army. He argued that peace, that making peace was the best course of action, that accommodation with forces more powerful than our own would best ensure our survival. That is the story in a nutshell. That is also not how we tell it. Instead, we never even visit Yavna. On every trip to Israel, the tour guide wakes us up early one morning so that we can climb the winding snake path to Masada's fortress. And there we watch the most glorious sunrise over the mountains. And that sight never fails to take my breath away. There we glorify the events surrounding Masada's downfall. We tell the story of how the zealots held out for three years following the destruction of Jerusalem. And when our heroes realized that the Romans would soon break through the fortress walls, having just completed a ramp on the mountain's opposite side, the zealots decide to commit mass suicide rather than be taken as slaves. The Roman army arrives in the ramp that they had just built to find the food stores full but all the Jews dead, save one or perhaps two, who would tell this tale so that future generations would know it. And we continue to hail our ancestors' heroism. We sing accolades to their bravery. Most people know that story. Most know the story of Masada. Few know about Yavna. Masada might very well be more majestic it might be more thrilling, but Yavna is why we are still here. It is why we continue to offer our Yom Kippur prayers. We prefer to glamorize defeated warriors. We push to the footnotes of history, the compromisers. We fail to admit that one generation's traitor is history's savior. We persist in telling the tales 
that glorify martyrdom. We prefer to round out those jagged historical edges, removing the fact that we were so divided, we wanted to kill each other. We tend to minimize the arguments, the disagreements, the divisions, the civil wars, the partisanship and vitriol of yesterday in favor of telling tales in which there are clear villains and clear heroes, even if those heroes died by their own hands. But history, history can only be told by those who choose life. And that path, that path involves complicated choices and compromises. Often what appears radical to contemporaries, history records as decisive. What his fellow Jews saw as making a deal with evildoers, what the zealots saw as unacceptable changes and compromises, history judges as crucial to our survival. The Sadducees refused to change, and their temple and their system was destroyed. The zealots fought against everyone and anyone who suggested even the slightest compromise, and they died. Here is a promise and a prediction. The future will not look like the past. And here is the more important point. The future must not look like the past. I know. That's not a particularly revelatory observation. But if we do recognize that point, why do we act as if we want the future to look like the past? History suggests, or at least how it, history actually went down, rather than how we memorialize it, that we have only one choice. Embrace the future with all its uncomfortable compromises and sometimes painful changes. Do you think Yochanan ben Zakkai thought the Roman general was a great guy? Do you think he really wanted to sit down with this terrible man and ask for that meager morsel of Yavna? But that is why we are still here. Recently, I woke up from a nightmare, and here is the picture my subconscious painted. I walked into our beautiful new sanctuary and looked up to the back wall to discover that the live stream camera had been removed. And I panicked. I panicked in my, because I realized that few people would be able to join us for Shabbat services. No one would be able to sing L'chad Dodi with our cantor. No one would be able to recite the Kaddish when they joined us from as far away as Los Angeles. We don't need to spend too much time trying to figure out part of the meaning of that dream. I was obviously stressed out about simultaneously leading services and making sure all the tech works. But the other and more important piece deserves further interpretation. More people are joining us online than are present here in the sanctuary in person. Don't say that out loud, some might be saying. But when have I ever shied away from shouting the truth? 
And part of the reason why this is true is because of this maddening and seemingly never-ending pandemic. But the other reason, and the more important reason, is that it's easier to join services from home than to come in person. Is it as good as being here in person? I would like to think not. Is a Broadway show better in person or on TV? When here, I would argue, it is easier to leave the world behind. Here, it is easier to connect with others. Here, the distractions of home and work can be pushed aside for at least an hour. Is it possible to find meaning and celebrate Shabbat or these high holidays online? Absolutely. Let's be honest. You can dress more casually. You can watch while you're still eating your dinner. You can relax on your comfortable and well-cushioned couches. You can also join services at whatever time is most convenient for you. Watch Friday night services on Saturday afternoon if you like. You can fast forward through my sermon or even watch last week's lengthy sermon at two times speed if you want. You can sit with your children and join us for only the Shema and Via Hafta. All these are possibilities. Is this a nightmare or a dream? That choice is ours to make. And the choice seems clear. Our survival depends on being amenable to change and open to adapting to new circumstances and different realities. We must never be about saying it's only good if you are here with me. It's only good if you do what I do. We must instead be about bringing meaning and spirituality far beyond these walls. We must be more like Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. I know it's uncomfortable. I get it. Change is the stuff of nightmares. But then again, change also guarantees our survival. It is the stuff of future dreams. For some, these renovations and modernizations to our new sanctuary are unnerving. I get that it is hard and uncomfortable to come to the place you called home and see it has changed. I get that change is really hard, most especially here, in this sanctuary and in this place. Here, people want to feel the comfort of the past, but the past is imagined differently by each and every one of us. We tell it the way we want to hear it. We tell it the way we wish to glorify it. Look at how we tell the story of the zealots rather than the more crucial tale of Yochanan ben Zakkai and his followers. We herald those who resisted change and sacrificed themselves rather than emulating those who made the uncomfortable but necessary changes that guaranteed our survival. In truth, change is part of our Jewish DNA. For the past year and a half, there has been a regular Shiva minion in my own home. Either it was on Susie's computer and for her congregation, 
or on mine and for our congregation. My friend Jamie Reese, who died this past year, thought all this online stuff was not a good substitute for the real thing. It is an understatement to say that he was a people person. And yet, when he died in February, we had no other choice but to gather on Zoom. And again, Zoom provided something that in-person Shiva could not have offered. There on my laptop was visual evidence of how many people were also touched by this loss. And I was comforted seeing their faces. And I scrolled through page after page after page. And I was uplifted to see their tears up close. I noticed that people joined us from faraway states and even countries sometimes. And often after concluding the minion service for these Zoom shivas, I would turn off my video but keep the audio on in case I was needed for tech support. And I would hear the most wonderful stories. And I began to realize that Zoom seemed to make Shiva more about the person. All those conversations about traffic and weather were no longer relevant. Good riddance. Could I wrap my arms around the mourners? No. Did Zoom provide us with something else? Yes. More people heard these beautiful stories. More people shared touching memories. And is this change here to stay? Absolutely. Embrace it. And yet we still teach our children as if Jewish education is about anything but change. We speak as if survival is about doing Judaism exactly as our great-grandparents did it, rather than taking the tradition and molding it into something different for the 21st century. We pretend our Hebrew schools are about fashioning 21st century Jews when, they are when in truth they are about telling, telling them what we want them to believe. Ask yourself these questions. Do we really want our children to think for themselves when it comes to their Judaism? Do we want them to look at this wonderful inheritance differently or just be perfect imitations of ourselves? Do we truly believe in education or do we really want indoctrination? I believe education must be about teaching children how to interpret their lives for themselves. It's not about parroting parents' views and ideas, but instead about forming their own notions and creating new Jewish paths. Sure, I sometimes don't agree with every choice, but rather than judging our children's decisions, we might be better off by saying this, I have faith in you. Learn. Learn some more. Make your own way. The tension between what true education should look like is nowhere more pronounced than when we talk about Israel, about the state of Israel. Let me lay out that conflict, and it saddens me to say this out loud. Our youth 
are turning away from Israel. They no longer love Israel as prior generations of Jews did. I believe, however, we should be blaming ourselves for this problem rather than our children. When it comes to Israel, Jewish educators only want to tell the history as they imagine it, the story as it resonates in their own hearts. We only want to speak of the Israel we love and we hold dear. And we become crazed when our children question why we feel more attached to Israel's Israeli suffering than that of Palestinians. We become outraged when they say things like, I actually agree with Ben and Jerry's decision. But if they are going to love Israel, their love is going to look different than ours. They might not even love it as much as I do. And we're going to have to figure out how to say, I wish you felt differently, but I understand. Your Jewish path is going to be different than my own. And then we should add this. Promise me this. Go to Israel. Talk to Israelis. Become familiar with the diversity of opinion among them. And then figure out your path. No amount of shouting is going to foster love. No amount of saying, what's wrong with you, is going to compel attachment. I am not interested in indoctrination. I believe in education. And education is not about raising the volume of our voices and shouting louder when we fail to convince others of what we believe to be the correctness of our own views. It's not about saying things like, if only these kids knew what I know or experienced what I experienced, then they would see what I see. It is instead present about presenting the facts and the issues and then saying, let's discuss, let's debate, let's ask them, what do you think? No opinion is off the table. No feeling is out of bounds. Of course there's a Jewish point of view. Of course there is my opinion. In case you haven't figured that out already. I'm really opinionated. But let's be honest. The traditional view might not end up being my children's view. Have more faith in them and their decision making than in agreement. Have more faith in them and the moral compass you give them than in conformity. Have faith that they can find a new way rather than the worn path of experts and elders. They are going to change things. Believe in them. They will weave their own tapestry in the words of Torah. The tradition is not one that believes God's words begin and end with the verses of the Torah. It assumes that we take those words and interpret them, and then reinterpret them for our own age and our own time. We make them new and current through our own interpretation. In fact, the greatest praise that one can offer a darshan, a sermon giver, are the words, 
That was a beautiful chiddush. In other words, that was a beautiful, novel, new interpretation. We praise something new in these ancient words. We do not praise regurgitating old words. We make them new again and again with our own minds. Akiva and Rashi might well have been greater masters, but their lives from 2,000 years ago and 1,000 years ago are not ours. Each of us must interpret Torah anew. It is not going to be like yesterday. The future is going to be far different than the past. And we have only one choice. Embrace change. Why? Because that and that alone will save us. Think about a Jewish wedding and the concluding breaking of a glass. It signifies that a couple are now officially married, that the dancing can begin. And that custom began in Talmudic times. According to the Talmud's own telling, Rav Ashi was throwing a wedding feast for his son. And apparently some of his guests or some of the other rabbis were having too much of a good time and I guess drinking what was tequila back then were becoming quite boisterous. So the host broke a glass to quiet them down. And the rabbi reasoned that their joy should be tempered, given that Jerusalem's holy temple was destroyed. But here is what is often forgotten. Rav Ashi lived in Babylonia, not in the land of Israel. And he lived almost 300 years after Jerusalem was leveled by the Romans. He was still thinking about those tragic events. Now, he did not say we must not dance. Instead, he said, celebrate the present, but remember the past. And even at this happiest of occasions, we pause and remember the past. But still, we are not bound by it. We are not encumbered by it. How do we recall the past while embracing the future? That is the central question for the 21st century synagogue. And the very same question Yochanan ben Zakkai faced is the question we must face. And we have no choice but to embrace this essential truth. The future will not look like the past. And the future must not look like the past. Nothing is going to be like it was before. And yet there will always remain imprints. There will always remain shards of broken glass that help us carry us forward. And finally, a wish and a prayer. When we buy something new, a new car or a new house or a new iPhone or even a new bike, we do not say mazel tov, but instead tilchadesh. Mazel tov means something has been completed. Tidchadesh means something new has begun. We say, in a sense, may you be renewed by this. May you find something new. May you discover some new teaching, some new meaning, some new revelation in this simplest of objects. May this thing add new meaning to your life. And so we shout, may this renewed sanctuary Grant our congregation new life. May it offer us new revelations. I guarantee you this.
We are going to be changed. And I also guarantee the following. We are going to survive.